1973. I lived in the Cockdor Quarter for about a year and a half. One day in summer I found that I had just 450 francs left. And beyond this, nothing but 36 francs a week, which I earned by giving English lessons. Hitherto, I had not thought about the future, but I now realised that I must do something at once. I decided to start looking for a job, and, very luckily as it turned out, I took the precaution of paying 200 francs for a month's rent in advance. With the other 250 francs, beside the English lessons, I could live on a month, and in a month I should probably find work, I hoped. I aimed at becoming a guide to one of the tourist companies, or perhaps an interpreter. However, a piece of bad luck prevented this. One day, there turned up at a hotel a young Italian who called himself a compositor. He was rather an ambiguous person, because he wore side whiskers, which are the either a mark of an Apache or an intellectual, and nobody was quite certain in which class to put him. And Madame F. did not like the look of him, and made him pay a week's rent in advance. The Italian paid the rent and stayed six nights in the hotel. During this time, he managed to prepare some duplicate keys, and on the last night, he robbed a dozen rooms, including mine. Luckily, he didn't find the money that was in my pockets, so I was not left penniless. I was left with just 47 francs, and that is seven and tenpence. Well, this put an end to my uh, plans of looking for work. I had now to got to live at the rate of about six francs a day, and from the start it was too difficult to leave much thought for anything else. It was now that my experience of poverty began, because for six francs a day, well, if not actual poverty, it's on the fringes of it. Six francs is a shilling, and you can live on a shilling a day in Paris, if you know how. But it's a complicated business. It's altogether curious, your first contact with poverty. You've thought so much about poverty. It's the thing which you feared all your life, the thing that you knew you would happen to you sooner or later, and it's all so utterly and prosaically different. You thought it would be quite simple, and it is extraordinarily complicated. You thought it would be terrible, and it's merely squalid and boring. It's the peculiar lowness of poverty that you discovered first, the shifts that it puts you to, the complicated meanness and the crust-wiping. You discover, for instance, the secrecy attached to poverty. At a sudden stroke, you've been reduced to an income of six francs a day. But of course you dare not admit it. You've got to pretend that you're living quite as usual. From the start, it tangles you up in a net of lies. Even with the lies, you can hardly manage it. You stop sending clothes to the laundry, and the laundress catches you in the street and asks you why. And you mumble something, and she, thinking that you are sending the clothes elsewhere is now your enemy for life. The tobacconist keeps asking why you've cut down on your smoking, and there are letters that you want to answer, and you cannot, because 
stamps are too expensive. And then there are your meals. Meals are the worst difficulty of all, because every day at mealtimes you go out ostensibly to a restaurant, you loaf an hour in the Luxembourg Gardens watching the pigeons, and afterwards you smuggle your food home in your pockets. Your food is bread and margarine, or bread and wine, and even the nature of food is governed by lies. You have to buy rye bread instead of household bread, because the rye loaves, though dearer, are round and can be smuggled in your pockets, and this wastes you a franc a day. Sometimes, just to keep up appearances, you've got to spend 60 centimes on a drink and go correspondingly short of food. Your linen gets filthy, and you run out of soap and razor blades, and your hair wants cutting, and you try to cut it yourself with such fearful results that you have to go to the barber after all anyway and you spend the equivalent of a day's food, therefore. And all day you're telling lies, and expensive lies. You discover the extreme precariousness of your six francs a day. Mean disasters happen, and they rob you of food. You spent your last eighty centimes on half a litre of milk, and you're boiling it over the spirit lamp, and when it boils... A bug runs down your forearm and gives the bug a flick with your nail and it falls plop straight into the milk. And there's nothing for it but to throw the milk away and go foodless. And you go to the baker's to buy a pound of bread and you wait while the girl cuts a pound for another customer. And she is clumsy and she cuts more than a pound. Pardon, monsieur, she says. I suppose you don't mind paying two extra sous extra? Bread is a franc a pound, and you have exactly a franc. When you think that you too might be asked to pay two sous extra, and would you have to confess that you could not, you bolt in panic. It is hours before you dare to venture into the baker's shop again. You go to the greengrocer's to spend a franc on a kilogram of potatoes, but one of the pieces that make up the franc is a Belgian piece, and the shopman refuses it, and you slink out of the shop, and you can never go there again. You've strayed into a respectable quarter, and you see a prosperous friend coming, and to avoid him, you dodge into the nearest café. And once in the café, well, you have to buy something. So you spend your last fifty centimes on a glass of black coffee with a dead fly in it. Well, one could multiply these disasters by the hundred. They're just part of the process of being hard up. You discover what it's like to be hungry. With bread and margarine in your belly, you go out and look into the shop windows. Everywhere there is food, insulting you in huge, wasteful piles, whole dead pigs, baskets of hot loaves, great yellow blocks of butter, strings of sausages, Mountains of potatoes and gruyere cheeses like grindstones. A snivelling self-pity comes over you. The sight of so much food. You plan to grab a loaf and run, swallowing it before they catch you, and then you refrain, simply from pure funk. You discover the boredom which is inseparable from poverty, the times when you have nothing to do and being underfed, 
can interest yourself in nothing. For half a day at a time you lie on your bed feeling like the jeune squelette in Baudelaire's poem. Only food could rouse you, and you discover that a man who has gone even a week on bread and margarine is not a man any longer, only a belly with a few accessory organs. This, and one could describe it further, but it's all in the same style, is a life on six francs a day. Thousands of people in Paris live it, struggling artists and students, prostitutes when their luck is out, out-of-work people of all kinds. It is the suburbs, as it were, of poverty. I continue in this style for about three weeks. The 47 francs were soon gone, and I had to do what I could on 36 francs a week from the English lessons. Being inexperienced, I handled the money badly and sometimes I was a day without food. But when this happened, I used to sell a few of my clothes, smuggle them out of the hotel in small packets, and taking them to a second-hand shop in the Rue de la Montaigne, Saint-Genève. The shopman was a red-haired Jew, an extraordinarily disagreeable man, who used to fall into furious rages at the sight of a client. From his manner, one would have supposed that we'd done him some injury by coming to him. Maître, he used to shout. You, here again? What do you think this is, a soup kitchen? And he paid incredibly low prices. For a hat which I'd bought for twenty-five shillings and scarcely worn, he gave me five francs. For a good pair of shoes, five francs. For shirts, a franc each. For a good term, he was always preferred to exchange rather than to buy, though, and he had a trick of thrusting some useless article into one's hand and then pretending that one had accepted it. Once I saw him take a good overcoat from an old woman and put two white billiard balls into her hand, then pushing her rapidly out of the shop before she could protest. It would have been a pleasure to flatten the Jew's nose, if only one could have afforded it. These three weeks were squalid and uncomfortable and Evidently there was worse coming, because my rent would be due before long. Nevertheless, things were not a quarter as bad as I'd expected, because when you're approaching poverty, you make one discovery which outweighs some of the others. You discover boredom and mean complications and the beginnings of hunger, yes, but you also discover the great redeeming feature of poverty, the fact that it annihilates the future. Within certain limits, it's actually true that the less money you have, the less you worry. When you have a hundred francs in the world, you're able to liable to the most craven panics. When you've only three francs, well, you're quite different. For three francs, we'll feed you till tomorrow, and you cannot think further than that, and you're bored but you're not afraid. You think vaguely, I'll be starving in a day or two. Shocking, isn't it? And then the mind wanders to other topics. A bread of margarine, a bread and margarine diet does, to some extent, provide its own anodyne. And there is another feeling that is a great consolation in poverty. I believe everyone who's been, who's been hard up has experienced it. It's a feeling of relief, almost a pleasure, of knowing yourself 
at last, genuinely, down and out. You've talked so often about going to the dogs. Well, here are the dogs, and you've reached them, and you can stand it. And that takes off a lot of anxiety.' 